to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Bubble or Revolution by Aditya Agashi, Neil Mehta, and Path de Tordra. They were the uh, your boys from Swipe to Unlock. We did uh, last lads. year. Yep. All product managers at the big dog companies. That's so, they're it. interesting. And they really know their stuff in this tech sector and can unpack some pretty complex uh, beasts. No, you must have really liked it if you doubled down on them. I didn't think it was that good of a book. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, yeah, I don't know why. I think I was just interested in learning about this. And I think it does um, unpack Bitcoin because it's a pretty abstract topic before you sort of get into it. And this really just does make it, you know, for your, your classic Joe Blows like us just to figure out what the hell's going on here. Yeah, people around the globe, they're incredibly excited about blockchain and its sister technology, cryptocurrency, the Harvard Business Review. They say, well, you know, blockchain could upend the entire banking industry. Uh, the famous venture capitalist Mark Andreessen said that blockchain was the most important invention since the internet. Analysts worldwide believe cryptocurrencies could revolutionize money and technology as we know them. But on the other hand, it's got a bit of a snake oil sort of reputation on it, don't you think? There's been a few big big booms and busts of big companies and um, big falls from grace, obviously. So, you know, even from the very start, Drug lords use Bitcoin to peddle drugs anonymously online. That's probably where people hear about it first. About uh, you know, I know a couple of people, and they used to buy drugs when they were younger, and um, they just left Bitcoin on their computer and and you know got lost a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so everyone's got a story like that, or it's even being um, attributed to the causes of global warming for the amount of energy it uses. Yeah, hackers always. Uh Oh, not always, but often demand payment in Bitcoin because it's pretty untraceable. It's a lot harder for law enforcement to track them down than to say, hey, can you put it in this bank account? And then they just do a quick search and find out exactly who the hacker was. It seems like uh, there's a massive hype just around these words. There was a, a company called the Long Island Iced Tea Company. They make iced tea and they call themselves Long Island Iced Tea Blockchain and their stock price quadrupled <laughs> just just by adding that word it's in good there. good way of doing it. It's, it's ridiculous. Change your name to Adam. That sounds, that sounds like a bubble. That sounds like a bubble. <laughs> it does a bit. If you change your name to Adam, Ashen, Adam Blockchain Ashton or something, <laughs> you're probably going to be the star of the show pretty quickly. So what do you reckon is true, man? Are blockchain and cryptocurrencies a hyper-fuel bubble technologies with no use case? Are they just rubbish? Or are they actually revolutionary inventions that are going to remake the whole world and go to the moon and change everything? What do you reckon? That's a good question, mate. Bubble or revolution? I guess we'll find out. On Halloween 2008, a computer scientist who called himself Satoshi Nakamoto, interesting day to choose, Halloween, he published a white paper introducing Bitcoin to the world. It's a slightly better day than uh, doing it on April Fool's Day, but uh, not much. (laughs) I wouldn't have thought not much better, but he... This uh, person that nobody knew about, nobody had ever really heard of, he just popped up with this thing that says, you know, we, I've got this cool idea. You know, it's going to allow people to exchange money without going to a bank. There's no credit card processor. There's no financial institutions involved. He just sent out this single email and all of a sudden, he kind of introduced the world to blockchain and, and cryptocurrency. So let's have a look at money. Throughout most of human history, there have been a couple of ways to hold money. You can hold physical items, things like gold or cash or cattle or salt or whatever you might have. Or you can trust a centralized institution like a bank or a chief um, and you know, they're, they're the ones saying how much money you've got. Yeah, there's a few, a few problems with each of those. If you think about if you have to trade your goat for a carpet, then you've got to carry your goat to the market. The other person's got to carry their carpet to the market, then they've got to carry the goat home. You've got to carry the carpet home. 
what if it was worth one and a half goats? It's pretty hard to sort of divvy up a goat. It's there's a lot of issues that come with that physical, the physical type of of money. Yeah, you can't just cut your goat in half and you got one and a half goats. It just doesn't really work like that. So, and the other thing is, it's can easy to be counterfeited. Apparently, um, maybe not the goat, but definitely the. Oh, sorry, the money. The money. <laughs> definitely the paper money. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> So the reason to solve these problems, hum- us very smart humans, we invented a new system which was mediated by a centralized trusted institution. That was the banks, the, the local chief, and had many forms of centralized currencies and different sorts of payment that could fall under this umbrella. Yeah, this MMM or M3, middleman mediated money, uh, it solved a whole bunch of problems. You know, you've got a, a middleman that you can trust to keep your money safe rather than keeping at, at home under your mattress or in the backyard if it's a goat chomping on your grass. In the bank's sense, it allowed for speedy online payments. You didn't have to physically meet up and hand over anything. You could just type in a few numbers and off the money goes apparently. It's harder to fake because there's an authority tracking all these transactions and are approving the transactions and obviously you don't need to log your goat around when you go to the market. Yeah, you don't want to be doing that. So there's a few problems with this, however. Um, Every time the money flows through the middleman, you have to play by the, the middleman's rules, right? So they might just say, hey, you're going to be paying 15 to 2.5% per transaction like it is with Visa and MasterCard or anything like that. And if you're going to just send money internationally, I'm going to swipe off 3% of your money there. And that's what, yeah, today PayPal as well, they take roughly 3% on every transaction. Pretty much adds up, man, mm. if you're trying to pay, say, people contractors fair, around the world, isn't it? That's a fair amount, absolutely. Another problem is you can only use this money that they're the middleman mediated money if the middleman grants you access. Uh, they say there's around 2 billion unbanked people in the world. They can't use this kind of money because they don't have a bank account. They don't have a credit card. Uh, so, they're kind of just out of the system. And then the other big problem with M3 is that you're entrusting them with your money and data. Um, they're the ones who've got all the control. So, you, you know, centralized banks and everything like that. They've they're the ones making the call on exactly how much you got and they've got control on your data and you can't really secure that data. So, we've got problems with that tangible money. It's uh, insecure, it's inconvenient, it's easy to fake, it's impractical for digital payments. We've got problems with the middleman money that we've laid out as well. So, how can we have something that is, you've kind of got the best of both worlds, it's intangible and it's middleman free? Looking back in history, there was a time when we didn't have these problems and one form of intangible middleman free form of money centuries before the big man Satoshi introduced Bitcoin was rice stones. No one knows who it is. Okay. Could, it could be a man, could be a woman, could be a whole group of people. It's a gender neutral name, is it? It could be anything. I don't know. There you go. So, and this uh, this other form of currency came from the, the, the good old Yap um, culture in a tiny Micronesian island in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, they had these giant stones, which they called rice stones. Pretty cool looking stones, these ones. They're big though. Yeah, each of the villages in Yap had dozens of these uh, rice stones scattered around town. They were just, you know, there was one sitting behind the church. There was one sitting in the chief's backyard. There was one sitting next to the police station, if they had police stations back there. <laughs> you know, it's just trash there, actually. <laughs> they were just, basically, they were just lying around everywhere. There was one near the waterfall, one near the well. They were just sitting everywhere. It wasn't like you had everyone had one in their own backyard. There was just the waterfall rice stone, and uh, someone would say, "Oh yeah, that one belongs to uh, Johnny from down the road." But Johnny it didn't from- necessarily live in Johnny's backyard because it was so big. Yeah, it's way too big. And this is just like a totally just different paradigm of what money is, right? Because it's just something that you can't um, lug around and pay someone, but you can just point to it and say, "That's Johnny's over there." <laughs> and then um, you know, one day you make a transaction, 
And then what happens is everyone in the whole society keeps a mental log of, say, Johnny paid Susie um, for those goats. The, the stone's just sitting there. It doesn't just move to Susie's backyard. It's just still sitting there. But because everyone has that mental log of the transactions, then you've got a collective understanding of actually who, who owns what and who's the richest richest person in the neighborhood. That's right. Now that you say that uh, rice stone under the palm trees on the beach, that belongs to the carpenter now. And so, it doesn't actually move, but if everybody knows what the go is and the chief the chief kind of says, yep, this is what the go is. And then more than 50% of the people agree, yep, we saw that transaction. The goats were traded for the, the, the carpenter. Now it's his. Yep. So, that means the rice stone is an intangible form of money different to our paper currency today. Number one. Number two is it's middleman free. So, the rice stone is democratic. You're not relying purely on the chieftain to say one day just wake up and go, hey, that um, that rice stone's my daughter's now because, <laughs> um, you know, you call me an asshole or whatever the, the chieftain <laughs> might be unhappy about. So, Everyone in the village is making the call on who owns what. So, it's middle person free. You're not relying on an institution like you are in M3. That's right. So, we're not saying that Satoshi necessarily tried to make a digital version of the thousand-year-old rice stone uh, technology, but it's kind of what it did. Hmm. Uh, in, a, in a sense, the Bitcoin was really the digital version of those rocks sitting on the beach. It's a digital currency, so that means it's intangible in theory. It's middle person free. It's democratic, as we'll soon find out. Like everyone in society is making a call on who owns what. You're not relying that on the government and who got the power to take things away or just tax everybody arbitrarily because it's invented its own way of keeping track of people's balances. That's right. It's like a similar to a shared Google sheet. You've got a Google Doc. Everybody's got access to it. Updates are made. Everyone can see the updates and agree on them. If someone puts in a dodgy one and says, "Oh yeah, I, some oh yeah, someone from down the street just gave me uh, gave me three thousand Bitcoin," if you're the only one that says it and everyone else says, "Mate, that, just, like, nah, that just didn't that just didn't happen," then that's not going on the Google Doc. That's yeah. it. that one's just getting deleted straight away. Yeah, and it's basically every time there are new transactions, the Google sheet gets updated. Everybody's computer gets the same version, so everybody's kind of on the same page of where all these Bitcoins are sitting. So, one obvious flaw of using a big shared spreadsheet, like you said, then Ash Joey, someone just goes in and goes, hey, I own 50,000 more Bitcoin or something, <laughs> or, or they could try and spend money they actually don't have. So, in the real world, the way that solves is you actually have a third-party trusted uh, financial institution, the bank saying, this person transferring money to this person. And because we're the bank, we can see that. And again, we're going to take a swipe of the action. We're going to take a few percentage points because of it. Um, but we're the ones just... we've a trusted institution making that call. Yep. In the world of Bitcoin, the point is to not have that bank. So what it is, it relies on the majority of people agreeing. If you say, hey, I want to buy uh, this pizza for 10 Bitcoin and someone says, mate, you don't, you don't have 10 Bitcoin. They, everyone can see what you do and don't have. And if enough people say, either agree and say, yep, you've got the money here, the transaction goes through. And if they say, mate, you're just pulling, pulling porkies here, no pizza for you. That's it. So... What happens is the verification, what would happen for the, the bank previously, it now happens within the community. So, this is where you get this idea of, uh, of Bitcoin mining when they say they're Bitcoin mining. What they're doing is actually going out there using um, computer power to really verify all the transactions that are really happening out there. And of course, people just don't do it out of the goodness of their heart. There's a bit of a potential fee coming back their way. 
Uh, and the fee is at every block, which is a whole bunch of transactions that gets uh, verified. If you mine that block, you get a little slice of the action. And this is just Bitcoins that really effectively get seeded out by the software. Every 10 minutes or so when the new block pops up, everyone's got a chance to verify the transactions and then take a bit of slice of the action. It's not, uh, they're not taking a percentage of the transaction like the banks would. There's just this uh, effectively free new Bitcoin, like the bank, like the central bank creating new money. There's like the, the mystical Bitcoin software just spitting out a couple of Bitcoin for each transaction. So if we think about what actual Bitcoin is, what it does is a mathematical technique called hashing. So this is where you've got a lot of information in an algorithm that has a fingerprint of, of information. For example, let's say if you got John Fitzgerald Kennedy, Ashto, mm. something becomes JFK. Um, you got the input, which is the full name. You got the hash function, which is the process taking initials. Um, and then you got the output, which is the initials itself. Now, the interesting thing, Ashto, is if I said JFK and told you to guess what John Fitzgerald Kennedy is, you would take a long, long time to process that. So it's almost impossible to do it work from JFK back to John Fitzgerald Kennedy, isn't it? But- I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Like it could be Jack. Uh- What's Jack Fred Kennedy? Oh, could be Kennedy. Could, could be could Kennedy. Have got one of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> you could have. Or then after Jack, then you might guess James. Oh, damn, that's not right. So there's a whole bunch of things that you're trying to guess and hope for the best. Except in this case, you're not just guessing from a small handful of names. It's a it's super super long. Uh, they say there's the chance of guessing it right is uh, 66 with 21 zeros at the end of it. So you got a one in. Six, I don't even know what that would be. 66,000 chance of guessing it. Uh, it's going to take you a hell of a long time to guess it. They say if, you, if you've got a bit of a software that randomly guesses as quickly as possible, if you run that through a MacBook, it's going to take you 2 million years just to guess one. So when you mine and you put that computer power to it, you're sort of essentially guessing and do the computation to find out what it is and then ding, <laughs> um, you figured it out really. So Bitcoin, what happens when someone's going out there and, and mining and... Uh, verifying a transaction, the previous transaction that happens um, really gets grouped into blocks. And these blocks, every period of time that they, you know, you have another block, another block, and they sort of connect together. And that's where block uh, meets chain. And then that's where you get the idea of the blockchain, Ashto. That's right. It's about 10 minutes or so. Uh, and that block of, it could be tens, it could be hundreds, it could be thousands of transactions that happen in that 10 minute period. And the once you've got that right hash code, once you know, heaps and heaps of computer power have, has gone into doing a whole bunch of guesses to get the right code, then it gets locked in and it joins the chain. There are opportunities to sneak in your own little block onto the chain and say, uh, Adam Ashton received 3 million Bitcoin. You can try and do it. But in order to do that, because of this democratic system, you need 51% of the votes effectively to agree, yep, this is a legit transaction. Everybody working together to prove all these you know, not fraudulent transactions are correct and that joins a chain, it's going to take you a bloody long time and a bloody lot of computer power to get 51% of the computers mining this block to agree that, yep, you've got a whole bunch of Bitcoin. Yeah. I, I, of- I reckon early days, probably could a, be a good chance. Good chance yeah. Good well, luck it's a today. lot of, um, yeah, good luck today. <laughs> it's a lot of crypto lobbying right there or computer lobbying. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that happened, might have happened to Ethereum, man, early days, that you had actually half do a break off crypto currency version and then there was like Ethereum 2.0 and then the old losers are still sticking back or something. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. But 
stepping back, you'll notice that Bitcoin's obviously doing a lot of math. Remember that JFK, it's probably that in the, the numbers format. So when you have hash functions for mining, they're really one-way functions for generating the keys and the addresses and then the digital signatures of proving your identity. So these are all forms of cryptography. And it's really the science of keeping information secure by encoding it in a format that attackers can't reverse engineer, like we were saying before. And for that reason, this is why Bitcoin is called a cryptocurrency. Satoshi's insight was that cryptography lets you have a currency that is secure, but at the same time transparent. And that's really the heart of Bitcoin. It's kind of uh, it's a strange idea that you've got these digital tokens that uh, an anonymous computer scientist invented out of thin air. It's weird that it's actually worth anything. If you mm. just heard of your neighbor, little Janet down the street says, I've got this new currency. Do you want some? You'd probably say, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, if, you, if some's going around, but you're not expecting it to be actually worth anything. No, not at all. It's like the ultimate network effect, isn't it? It's like <laughs> you, right. if you need everyone else to believe it's true to add value to it, and the more people who believe adds more sort of value to it, right? But if you just got Janet um, smoking bongs around the corner, <laughs> trying to give you a piece of paper and saying it's worth 50 bucks, um, you're probably not going to take it. <laughs> That's right. But this is, this is kind of what happened, that out of nowhere, this magical, made-up, invented digital tokens became worth you know thousands of dollars. Uh, obviously, it didn't happen overnight. It started off with a whole bunch of nothing. Turns out that what kind of really kick-started this uh, was a, a bunch of pizza. 100%. So one day, a Florida dude, Laszlo Hanyech, he posted on a Bitcoin forum. Um, so obviously, a few early adopters out there. He said, I'll give everyone, anyone, anyone, I'm pretty, I'm starving here. Give, I'll give you 10,000 Bitcoins um, at the time worth 31 bucks. For anyone who just go out and send him a pizza. And uh, he said, I don't care how you do it. You can make it at home yourself or you can go to a pizza delivery joint and figure it out there, but just get me a pizza. So there's this uh, young... British man, Jeremy, he says, you know what, I'm down for this. So he found where this bloke lived. There was a pizza just in his neighborhood called uh, Papa John's. So he ordered those two large pizzas for 31 bucks. Uh, Laszlo said, awesome, I've been starving. I apparently didn't have 31 bucks, but I had a whole bunch of useless Bitcoin. So there you go. It's basically worth nothing at this point. So he said, here, here you go, here's 10,000 Bitcoin. Zoom forward today, that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. for that pizza. <laughs> Probably the most expensive pizza in history. Probably the best um, deal of all time for one, one lad. Probably the worst of all time for the other. That's right. So most of the money around the world we use today is the same philosophical problem. And it's this idea of this intersubjective reality. Like we were saying, it's like everyone believes it's true, which makes it actually true. And it's pretty arbitrary when you actually drill down on, on what it really is. That's right. If you go to Mars and meet an alien and say, here's uh, 20 bucks, can you give me a, a jug of water? That 20 bucks is useless to that alien unless they know what 20 bucks is. Yeah, 100%. So, if, you know, if we go to the farmer's market and you get 20 bucks for jam, you're probably going to be getting pretty good jam for 20 bucks. <laughs> and the person making the jam is willing to give their jam over 20 bucks because they know they can go and use that 20 bucks to go and buy something else. Yeah, that's it. So an intersubjective reality is something that we all share the belief, which sort of makes it true, explains why Bitcoin has value in the first place. But the question now is why the hell has it achieved such this this multi-million you know, times price <laughs> jump over time? Yeah, starting from less than a dollar to go up to you know, multiple, multiple million X increases uh, is pretty wild. 
So they say one potential reason for such a big increase, they say, is the, the ease of use theory in that it's pretty easy to get Bitcoin. You don't have to really go anywhere. You don't have to do anything other than uh, you know get an account basically and say, hey, I want to trade you this my money I've currently got for this other digital money. And it's pretty easy to do. It's not, not a huge barrier to entry. So they're saying that it's because it's quite easy and then you can just ping that money around wherever you want to buy your pizza. They're saying, oh yeah, that's well, it's, it seems pretty good. And it's that's easy. a good reason to bump the price up. It is easy. It's relatively easy. Money's probably still a bit easier. Oh, <laughs> yeah, easy. I mean, you'd say it's 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 easier than, than rye stones, put it that that's way. That's right, that's right. Another theory is speculation theory. Now, this is a pretty decent theory because it's I think this one's better. Um it's just plain old speculation. Um, the ma- majority of Bitcoin users, you can say speculators, early days, invis at 30 cents. If it goes up to 60 cents, that's a doubling of your money, that's whatever right. you had in. Tell your mate at the party, just double more money and then someone else does it and so forth and it just goes on and on and on. I don't think it's in this book, but you've obviously got that tulip bubble <laughs> speculation theory which happened hundreds of years ago where one day someone said, tulip's worth something and the intersubjective reality started to believe it more and more. Tulips went up in price and it was a... Um, positive feedback loop where tulips were more expensive than a, I was about to say a car, but whatever that was back then. <laughs> um, and then it just went to zero. Well, there you go. It's like saying the, the speculation theory is saying that the price goes up because everybody thinks it, it's going to go up. And because everyone thinks it's going to go up, they go and buy a whole bunch. And because everyone's buying it, then it goes up. And so uh, that works, I guess, until, until it doesn't. doesn't. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but in that, that's, I'd say that's a pretty good theory. I'd say that's a better theory than ease of use. I think everyone's buying it because they think it's going to go up. I think the next one's probably the, one of the biggest selling points until they um, they sort of tear this apart, <laughs> the step and after. But um, it's an inflation-proof hedge because this is probably the one when I sort of just try to get really interested in it because if you think about currency and money these days, everyone's using it, but governments at any time can print and print and print and sort of borrow into the future. And, and then you have those issues of hyperinflation or inflation, which has happened plenty of times in history, hey? Yeah, if you think of uh, Zimbabwe or Venezuela or go back 100 years to Germany where there was this uh, hyperinflation where you go to buy a, a litre of milk and it's worth a, it's a dollar and then the next day you go back and a litre of milk's 10 bucks and then two days later, a litre of milk's worth 100 bucks and it's just hyperinflation. It's just going crazy. Apparently, it happened in Venezuela. I don't know if this is a typo in my notes, but yeah, 10 million percent in 2019. 10 million percent a year. That's a lot. That's <laughs> well. It's that's, a like a. It's an, another one of those feedback loops because if, if you know, inflation's a function of the the speed and the velocity of money and how quickly you spend mm. it. And because of that, if you get paid and you know that your, a car is going to be worth five times as much in two weeks, you, you spend your money straight away. Yeah. And then the person you spend your money straight away to spends their money straight away. <laughs> and then you got that feedback loop, and all of a sudden you're um yeah ten million percent after. <laughs> it's just gone crazy. Well, the reason Bitcoin is supposedly inflation proof is that there's no central bank that just prints as much money as they want. It's kind of fixed. You know exactly how much uh you know those fees, those rewards that we were saying. That's like the new Bitcoin being printed, but it's fixed. It's already coded into the system. It gets less and less and less. And there's a point in time where it stops, and there's no new money getting printed. So it's really it's really fixed. So hyperinflation is obviously bad. But also, deflation has its risks as well. So, Bitcoin, if you're not printing heaps of heaps of Bitcoin or you're, I don't know what the word is for print for Bitcoin, but I don't know. What is it? <laughs> Magic pop-outs. Magic pop-outs <laughs> of Bitcoin. If there's not too many, um, you might have deflation where the money supply is actually decreasing relative to the people who's using it. And let's say, rather than your $100 uh, basket of goods, basket of apples today, 
with inflation, it might be worth 110 bucks in a few years. But if the basket of apples next year is going to be $95, um, that's deflation. So, you know, it's decreasing in its overall value. Think about the psychology here, Ashto. You're probably not going to go out and buy a car if you know the money you're holding now is mm. going to be worth more than what you're paying today. So, you actually <laughs> hold on to your money. That's bad. Yeah, but stuff's if, not flowing. But if it's a hyperinflation where it's, you know, you, you spend straight away and then it's, you have, so it's both right. are really bad. Sounds like they're both feedback loops. And the reason that the Bitcoin money supply is shrinking is because a whole bunch of people are losing it. Those early, early days where you had an old computer and then you buy your pizza and then you think, oh, this Bitcoin, it's worth nothing. You don't even, you forget about it. You chuck the uh, laptop goes to the tip. All of a sudden, there goes a whole bunch of Bitcoin and then zoom forward a couple of years. Oh shit, that laptop's worth 10 million bucks. How can I go and get it back? Good luck. It's yeah. gone. They're saying that 30% of Bitcoins have been lost. That's a that's a hell of a lot of lost Bitcoin. It's so many so many bad, funny <laughs> stories out there of that. So deflation's good for the Bitcoin investors because their money's increasing over time. But as a currency where you're actually trying to have the right level inflation where people are spending it at X amount, doesn't really stack up in that sense, does it? Yeah, people are saying, you know, it's a currency, it's a cryptocurrency, it can be used to facilitate exchange of goods or is an investment where you're speculating, where you're investing to hope your money goes up. They're saying it's it can't really be the same thing. It's it's one or the other. You can't have both. So they're saying, well, is it an investment or is it a currency? They're, they're mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's it. So it's sort of like digital gold today. You don't really trade gold, but you could say gold's an investment that just sits there and is a hedge against inflation, is Bitcoin that or is it something you trade? And that's why like there's um, some weaknesses and strengths to this as a cryptocurrency. I mean, we're not going to go through them all now, but there's obviously so many popping up that are trying to be more like an investment mm. or try and sort of replace the gap where Bitcoin is where it's not really a currency. So, there's others that are just yeah. trying to be really quick and flow through and sort of replace money. That's right. For a currency, it needs to be stable. For an investment, it needs to grow. So, you can't really have it be stable and growing at the same time. So, it can't be both investment and a currency. Jeez, it just hurts the head, mate. <laughs> it does. So, bubble or revolution, man? What do you reckon? The book didn't really answer it, did it? No. Well, the book said it's not that simple. It's not just uh, a yes or no, A or B. It's not a bubble or a revolution. It's saying that there are some things, you know, some blockchains, cryptocurrency related technologies, they are a revolution. They are going to change the world. Maybe not the way that we expect. Uh, and there's going to be a whole bunch of bubbles along the way, a whole bunch of things that pop up and then very quickly pop off. Pop off like a big fluffer. <laughs> but the irony is, right, like especially early days and I think, I don't know if I told you, I went to a Bitcoin um, meetup when I was in like 2012, 2011 mm. and I was convinced it's going to change the world. Mate, it would have changed your world if you had bought yeah, some back then. I told everyone to go and invest in it and, you know, and I ended up just blowing my money on just <laughs> booze or whatever. And didn't get anything, but but that that original selling point that it's something to upend governments. The irony is that it's probably going the opposite way. It's actually going to strengthen governments because mm. it's really that it's being integrated with the current monetary system, and it's going to be adopted by banks. And really, to have confidence in it, you sort of do need that centralized institution like a government to sort of have its backing. Yeah, it's a it's a strange one that the the whole point was to have a way to not involve a middleman, but it turns out the best way is going to, if there's a middleman running things, it's, yeah. a, it's a strange one. So, they say, well, bubble or revolution, in the short term, cryptocurrencies are definitely going to see values spike and values crash. It's going to look very, very bubble-like. There are going to be 
uh, companies and apps and technologies that come and go and inflate and then pop. But they're saying that in the long run, there is actually a revolutionary side to it. Uh, maybe not the way we intended, but they're saying it is a bubble and a revolution. It's a bubble or... <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a both. It's a both. That's the answer. Mm-hmm.